0: Today on Abounding Grace from Pastor Ed Taylor. I think it would be safe to say as you study through the scripture that the scriptures are filled not only with the people that God uses, but with the failures and the imperfections of the people that God uses. And God wanted us to make sure, I, I believe he wanted us to understand that even in our own imperfections, a life surrendered to him, he'll use us.
1: This is amazing grace This is amazing Then you would bear my
0: cross. You lay down your life. Then I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I'm sleeping
1: for all that you've done for me. Think a moment about a water-saturated sponge. If we push down on it, water runs out onto the table. We immediately know what fills the interior pockets of the sponge. Well, the same is true of us. We can tell what fills us on the inside by what comes out under pressure. Today on Abounding Grace, Pastor Ed Taylor takes us to 1 Samuel. Now this story we're about to look at reveals that God uses imperfect people and situations. So if this is a difficult time for you, Receive wonderful words of encouragement from 1 Samuel chapter 1. Here's Ed to encourage us to trust in God through the ups and downs of life.
0: Now the book of 1 Samuel covers, for you note-takers, just some things, some background, covers about 94 years of time, from the birth of Samuel to the death of Saul. Written, the author being Samuel, we see a prophetically oriented history of Israel's first monarchy. And 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, picks up the story of Israel that left off back in Judges. Samuel follows Samson. And he too had to deal with the Philistines that Samson didn't fully accomplish a permanent victory. And we see the transition of leadership in Israel from judges to kings, from theocracy to monarchy in 1 Samuel. God will use the monarchy, use the kingship, will use even Saul, He'll use Saul and the monarchy to bring more stability to Israel because it's easier, and we see this demonstrated, that it was easier for Israel to follow a man instead of an earthly king, instead of God. Samuel was the king maker who anointed the first two rulers of the United Kingdom, Saul and David. Now one more thing, a few more things before we jump into these first few verses. Both Samuel and David are types and pictures of Jesus Christ. A type in the Old Testament is an imperfect picture of, well, many different things, but Samuel and David become these types and pictures of Jesus. Samuel is a picture, and we'll see this drawn out as we study. He's a type of Christ as a prophet, a priest, and a judge. So we see that lived out in Jesus. David is a very beautiful and powerful type of Christ. David is born in Bethlehem, works as a shepherd, rules as the king of Israel. He's the anointed king who becomes the forerunner of the messianic king. His typical messianic psalms are born of his years of rejection and danger, like Psalm 22. God enables David, a man after his own heart, according to 1 Samuel 13, 14, to become Israel's greatest king. And the New Testament specifically calls Christ the seed of David according to the flesh in Romans chapter 1, and the root and the offspring of David in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Another thing to note in First Samuel, this is the first book of the Bible that uses the word Messiah. Or in chapter 2, if you want to just turn there, First Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, it's translated in the Hebrew here. Notice, You know, Hannah is just such a powerful woman of God, too. I can't wait till we get to this section. Hannah actually, in her prayer, prophesies Messiah, where she says in verse 10, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And so with all of this in mind, let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 1. And boy, does the... Book of First Samuel start out with trouble and dilemma. Those of you that read ahead, now there was a certain man of Ramthayam Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Eluhu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And here's the trouble, verse two: he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other was Peninnah, and Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So we jump right in and we're faced with controversy in the second verse. Things in this book are messed up from the beginning. Now before we address the two wives issue, understand that the book opens up with a specific man living in a specific place, living in a specific time, in Israel's history. He's living in a time when the Philistines are gaining momentum and power and military might and strength. The Philistines were an aggressive sea people whose mass invasion of the eastern Mediterranean coast made them Israel's principal enemy from the time of Samson until their devastating defeats at the hand of David around 980 B.C. The best known Philistine in the Bible is who? Goliath. That's right. We're introduced to this particular man, Elkanah. God unfolds his word in 1 Samuel as he usually does with a person, a man or a woman, or even a kid that he chooses to use. And I'm so glad that he uses us. Elkanah, we learn, is a descendant of Zoph. His family line shows he was a Levite according to 1 Chronicles chapter 6. He's called an Ephraimite here because his family lived in the Levitical city within the boundaries of Ephraim, not because he was of the tribe of Ephraim. Now, verse 2 introduces to us a difficulty and a dilemma. It says in verse 2 that he had two wives. Peninnah, her name means coral or ruby, and Hannah, which means grace or gracious. Elkanah was a polygamist, or in this case a bigamist, but more than one wives, a polygamist. Bigamy and polygamy was culturally acceptable and widely practiced. And that's what we read in verse 2. We are reading the true story of a man and his two wives. Now, because something is culturally acceptable, and because something has been okayed by the law of the land, does not mean that God approves of it. Let me repeat that, especially in our own state with the decisions of our own lawmakers— because a governmental official or a group of government officials change a law and make something that was extremely dangerous now something that is legal doesn't remove the danger and doesn't make it right. It's simply a change in the laws of man. And because something's culturally acceptable, because the majority of people agree or the majority, which majority is fifty out of a hundred is fifty plus one, that's the majority. So that if the majority vote is 51 to 49, that means 49 people decided that wasn't good and 51 people decided that it was good. In our culture, that is what rules the day. It's unfortunate that in our culture, which is not much different from the culture of the day, and I also, you know, I, I, I like to refer not only to the culture of our country, but to the culture of our world system. This is a norm around the world. But because of the latest decisions in our own country, we have to understand that it's very similar. This is a very similar truth. The Bible speaks of Elkanah having two wives. Now, I want you to be careful in the Scriptures when you're reading to not put in the Bible what it doesn't say. Because this is a difficulty. If you listen to our radio broadcast on a regular basis, more, more than you know, maybe once or twice every couple months, somebody's going to call and say, I don't get this. I don't understand this. I was reading through the Bible, and it's, you know, especially in the Old Testament readings, I came across, well, I came across this passage where it says right here that Elkanah was a polygamist, and that God, you know, I I saw it, and God used him, and and he's worshiping, and God uses his wife, and and I just don't get it. I don't understand. I mean, does God approve of polygamy? The answer is no. The answer is no. From the very beginning, God identified God identified the definition of a marriage that he created, a a relationship that he created that he terms marriage. We refer to it as marriage today. From the very beginning, from the beginning of the order of God, marriage is clear. One man, one woman, one lifetime. Now, we recognize that not everyone lives up to that ideal, and that's unfortunate, and it's true. But God, by mentioning polygamy here, does not approve of it. Any more than you mentioning polygamy approves of it. You're just saying it like it is. You want to know about Elkanah's life? Well, let's see that God would even use a man like Elkanah. Does he approve of that? No. No does that become the norm now because of Elkanah of all the different passages of where marriage is defined, one man, one woman one lifetime, or Adam and Eve and all throughout scripture and other sexual behavior outside of marriage between men with men and women with women and women with men and and fornication and adultery, all of the sexual sin does does that mean that now we can just kind of make up uh, new things because it is culturally acceptable and no, the Bible is just clear here in Elkanah's life, he was messed up, he was living according to the to the cultural norm. You know why? Because of judges. Because of the leadership. When everybody does that which is right in their own eyes and live apart from a standard that God has developed, not a pastor, not a priest, not a religion, not a church, just a simple understanding of the scriptures, just a simple reading of the scriptures, you find that this is often the result. It's not uncommon for the enemies of the Bible to use this as an attack on the morality of God. To use it as, well, it sounds like this. How can such a moral God condone such immoral behavior? I mean, if this is immoral, why does God condone it? He doesn't. Even back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, there was a direct command to the kings as an example to the country. It says in Deuteronomy 16 verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself. So not only does God through creation and precept define marriage, he also defines what it's not. He defines it both in the positive and in the negative. And there's many things in our culture that our culture accepts that are not God's heart or will for you. They're destructive and hurtful. God's will for marriage we've seen. The Bible records for us the facts. That's when you're reading the Bible and you come across, well, what is this? What's verse 2 all about? You have a God that won't hide the difficulties in the people that he uses. He's, this is, you know, here's the story of Samuel and David and and Elkanah, and this is all, this is what Hannah had to deal with. Hannah was married to a man that was married to another woman. She was barren, and this other woman gave her a hard time. But God's not condoning it. The real answer to these types of questions is it opens up for a dialogue that even if we want to talk about the scriptures, I, I welcome the question. I love the question. I enjoy dialoguing over these things, so that when the, in the midst of the dialogue, I, I don't want to completely cut them off. I just want to explain to them this is what the Bible says, and, and and God is describing the difficulties. He doesn't, you know, you, you would think it's one of the it's one of the beautiful evidences I believe of the Bible of the many, you know, the manuscript evidence, the archaeological evidence, the statistical probability of the prophetic within the Bible. There's a lot of things that hold that 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 you can study that will affirm to you the evidences that the Bible that you hold in your hand is reliable inspired of God. Amazing evidences. But there's another evidence that you'll see over and over again, and that is the Bible tells the truth. I mean, let's just think of it for a second. If you were writing the Bible, would you expose every failure and every difficulty and every issue if you were writing the book about yourself? I mean, I think you'd skip a few things, wouldn't you? I mean, wouldn't you want to? You don't want to relive it. You don't want any people asking you about it. So it's just like, well, what happened to that season in your life? Oh, no, no, we don't talk about that season. Well, why, why, why don't you talk about these? Because I'm the author of the book and I can write what I want. <laughs> and God's the author of the book. And when he writes it and he writes your story, it's, you know, it's everything. It's all of it. And, and so when he writes of Elkanah, you go, how can God use Elkanah? Well, man, in his, imperfect, in, in his imperfection, God was able to overcome his imperfection. And through that, use Hannah to bring Samuel, to bring David, to bring Messiah. I think it would be safe to say as you study through the Scripture that the Scriptures are filled not only with the people that God uses, but with the failures and the imperfections of the people that God uses. And God wanted us to make sure, I I believe he wanted us to understand that even in our own imperfections, a life surrendered to him, he'll use us. And so you're saying, if you're concluding today, okay, wait a minute, Ed, if God's going to write the book and and he's going to write my name in the book of life and he's going to write my story, I guess I'm going to go get me a couple wives. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't condone that. And if you were to make that choice, a couple wives, couple husbands, either way, you would be making a grave error and sin against God. In order to live a life that pleases God, you need to live a life by the precepts of God. And he's defined that for us. So God is just sharing us, Hey, look, Elkanah is here, and he's got two wives. And notice verse 3. This, this man went up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. We're going to learn about Hophni and Phinehas later, but if you like to write next to your Bible, these guys are rats. They don't belong in the ministry. And you can read ahead for yourself or you can wait, but Hophni and Phinehas are men that misrepresent God. They're taking advantage of the ministry that are hurting the people of God. And God, and you'll see with Hophni and Phinehas, they will not get away with it. They were given time and time and time to repent. They did not. They didn't get away with it. But we'll learn more about them later. Whenever the time came, verse 4, for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and all his sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival. Interesting how this is included. This, this, this was not a, a, a relationship that was peaceful and cool and we all get along. This was a rivalry with two wives. There was great tension and difficulty. And so God wants us to recognize her rival also provoked her severely to make her, what does your Bible say? Miserable. This was a miserable existence. I believe it was miserable for both women and for Elkanah. It was not only miserable for Hannah and what she had to endure, but it was miserable for Peninnah because her whole life was set to destroy someone else's life. And poor Elkanah is dealing with the consequence of what? His sin. His sin. It was a miserable home because sin brings misery. Living in sin brings misery. So her rival provokes her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. Now, Peninnah had children. Hannah did not. And through that became a place of provocation and misery. Every year, constantly, continually, she would not let up. Hannah was sad and sorrowful. And even though she received the double portion, and perhaps it was, it was Elkanah's way, instead of making things right, it was kind of Elkanah's way to try to appease the emptiness of his wife. And she couldn't enjoy the double portion because her heart was set on having a child. Now this phrase, verse 5, is, a, is an interesting phrase, and we need to pause here where it says... But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. I just want to speak to some of you ladies, some of you women, where I know you're in the same place. This has been your testimony, and great sadness has come to your heart because of it. Times where it's very difficult for you to perhaps even enjoy a baby dedication because it comes around a time period where either you have lost a child or you have a womb that's closed in your heart's desire. Or perhaps some of you single ladies that in this season of your life, you're not married and you don't foresee marriage anytime soon, but you're kind of waiting on it. And, And while you're waiting on it, the topic of children comes up. And while it may not be particularly Hannah's situation, or it might be, there is a great difficulty when you read this. You know, God's sovereignty in the affairs of children is clear throughout the scriptures. It's clear in dozens and dozens of questions we have for God. Why me? Why not me? Why this? Why now? Why him? Why her? In Genesis chapter 20, verse 17, it says, Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. They had bore, then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah. Abraham's wife. In Genesis chapter 29 verse 31 it says when the Lord saw that Leah was un Leah was unloved he opened her womb but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Reuben for she said the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. In Genesis chapter 30 verse 22 it says then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb and she conceived and bore a son and said God has taken away my reproach so she called his name Joseph and said the Lord shall add to me another son. So I just want you to know, ladies, if you're in a place where you could say about your own conclusion that the Lord has closed your womb, we pray for you. We pray that God's will would be done with your womb that if you truly want to have children, we pray that the Lord would give you children. Now, we've seen answers to that prayer where wombs that have been closed. um, Even just before service, I was talking to one of the families down in the cafe, and little Stephen came up to me. And and as we were talking about Stephen, I introduced him as a miracle child. He's a miracle. He's a walking miracle because his mom and dad, for over 12 years, prayed in their marriage and desired to have a child. And they went through all that they could possibly think of in order to have a child. And up the time that Stephen was conceived, the Lord had closed their womb. And boom, at God's sovereign timing, Stephen came. And there he was. Well, he's walking and running around the church as a testimony to the Lord. Now I've seen that and we rejoice. My own pastor, my own children's ministry pastor, the man that God used in a great way to disciple me for many years, he and his wife also experienced many, many years of barrenness, even to the point where they were ready to adopt and right before they were ready to adopt, she conceived and the Lord took their life in another way and like Stephen who now has in that closed womb two more brothers and there's three kids in that family now, just like with my friend Rudy, same thing, he has a daughter and God gave him a second daughter and so Sometimes we see God's answer in prayer to a child. Other times we see God's answer to that prayer in adoption. And other times we see God's prayer to that, that no, it's not my will, God says, on this side of eternity, for now. Barrenness is is hard. You you and I, we want to learn, both men and women, we want to be sensitive to those that want to have a child and can't. We want to learn to be sensitive. We want to learn to not say something that would hurt them or harm them. But instead, instead of saying something, you know, sometimes like Peter, you know, we, we think we need to say something and then we do and then we regret it. We just should pray for them. And, and if that's something that they have shared with you, then it becomes a point of contact for you to continue to pray for them and continue to encourage them and continue to seek God's will with them because you don't know. Like Hannah in this time, you know, barrenness is today is sad and it's hard, but I want you to know in ancient times, barrenness was tragic. It was a tragic, uh, you could say, as one commentator did, barrenness was the ultimate tragedy for a woman, for a married woman. It was a horrific event. As you could talk to many women that are barren today, and they would describe it in in much the same way.
1: That is Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace. And Ed, as you were talking about barrenness and how difficult that is for many women... I couldn't help but think someone listening right now is experiencing that. Would you pray for them as we close?
0: Yeah, we'd sure love to do that. Father, I know that barrenness is a very challenging, difficult season of life for a woman. And I pray for the women listening to me right now that are struggling and hurting and fearful maybe a little frustrated and angry, I pray, God, that you would comfort them, that you would establish, God, a life of faith in them, that even though we don't know what the future holds, we know who holds the future. And I I pray that they would cling to the one, to you, God, who holds their future, even in their barrenness. And God, even saying that word is hard to hear, but it is that season that they're facing. And Lord, send encouragers into their life. Send encouraging words and notes. You know, maybe even if they're going through their social media feed, if they're on social media, Lord, that you would just send them encouragement and strengthen them as they wait upon you for your perfect will to be revealed. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Well, today we listen to a message called God Uses Imperfect People and Situations. And maybe it's just what you needed to hear. Hear it again online at aboundinggraceradio.com and share the link with someone, too. Another way to go and grow in the Word is by downloading our app. Search for Ed Taylor. This is a great way for you to take in the Word of God wherever you might be. Look for our podcast, too, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, see if this sounds familiar. You have a stubborn habit. You prayed about it, you surrendered it to God, and yet you still can't seem to break free. It's about that time that discouragement can begin to set in. Well, today we'd like to recommend a helpful book authored by Erwin Lutzer called How to Break a Stubborn Habit. In it, you'll find three essential ground rules you need to accept in order to change. Also, discover the secret to dismissing tempting thoughts. And Erwin Lutzer uncovers the roles of God, Satan, and your loved ones in your success or failure. Request a copy today when you give a gift of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. Call 877-30-GRACE or go online to calvaryco.store. And here at Abounding Grace, we look to the Lord to provide for us. If he's leading you to take an active role in the ministry through either a one-time gift or ongoing monthly support, please visit us online at AboundingGraceRadio.com or call 877-30-GRACE. Well, that's going to do it for today. Come back tomorrow when Pastor Ed Taylor will pick up where we left off in 1 Samuel here on Abounding Grace. This
0: is amazing grace.